everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker, and we have got a big news show for you today. We've had, we've had a lot of interviews lately, and there's a lot to catch up on. Though, honestly, a lot of this happened within the last week or so. So I've got a lot of stuff to cover. Uh, we're going to talk about Cloudflare's free mobile VPN called Warp. That is finally out. I was talking about that a while ago, so I'll tell you about that. Uh, I've got a little note uh, update about Firefox's uh, free VPN, which we talked about recently. Uh, we're going to talk about how a clever hacker has produced an apparently unstoppable Apple device jailbreak. And what's a jailbreak? Yeah, we'll get into that too. There's a new Android virus that's uh, very sophisticated that affects many, many different uh, Android devices. So we'll talk about that and whether or not you need to be worried. There's a WhatsApp bug that's pretty serious. We'll talk about that. There was a breach uh, in the Words with Friends app. So if you use that, you'll uh, I'll tell you what to do about that. Microsoft 10 has really is really making it hard not to sign up for a Microsoft account when you um, when you set up an account on, the, on a Windows 10 computer, and I'll we'll walk through kind of the implications of that. There's a really amazing and nasty bug that affects basically all modern cell phones, any cell phone that has a SIM card in it, um, because it's a exploit of the SIM card itself. Most people think of that little thing as just a simple little thing with maybe some data on it, but it's actually got a lot more going on in there. And because of that, it's vulnerable. So that's really kind of scary. We'll talk about that. I'm going to talk a little bit about how the DOJ has once again, uh, in, actually in concert, uh, the U.S. in concert with Australia and the U.K., have come out and asked Facebook explicitly to not implement true end-to-end -end encryption in its messaging apps. Um, you know, this keeps coming up. We'll talk a little bit about that. And finally, uh, wrapping it up for our tip of the week, we're going to talk about why you need to make absolutely sure that you are wiping your devices clean of data, that is, before you sell, recycle, or even trash them. Uh, so we're going to talk about how to do that. So we got a lot to get to, so let's not waste any more time. Let's get to it. All right, since I've got so many things to go through, I'm going to try to go a little quicker than normal because we've got a lot of ground to cover. Uh, so let's get off a couple quick ones here at the beginning. Cloudflare, who does some really great work, has finally, finally released its Warp VPN for mobile devices. It's got a free tier, which I think is fine for most people. Uh, I've got it on my devices already now. been waiting for it since they announced it on April 1st. Uh, if you want to get all the details, you can just uh, point your browser at uh, their IP address which is 1.1.1.1. Pretty easy to remember, four ones. And if you just go to https colon slash slash 1.1.1.1, you'll see all the info there, including download links for your various mobile devices. Um, they do have a for pay version, which you could look at if you really need some extra speed. But so far, I've been I've been very happy with just the, the regular free client. One more thing, recently I talked about Firefox's new uh, Firefox private network plugin for Firefox browser. That is basically a VPN for your browser, just your browser. Uh, it's currently in beta and um, it's free, but I'm, uh, and I, so I kind of pushed it really hard thinking, oh, this is great, it's a free product, but I believe it may not be free once it comes out of beta. So, you know, that will uh, temper things a little bit. If that's the case, if they do end up charging, 
depending, of course, on what they charge, then, you know, at that point, you might want to just consider getting a, a regular VPN service, which we've talked about many times on this show. But, you know, we'll see. Maybe they'll maybe like kind of like a Cloudflare's Warp. Maybe they will have a free tier and then a uh, for pay tier. So we'll see. But anyway, right now it's free um, and it's still really cool. So you might want to give that a shot if you don't already have a full-fledged VPN. If you've already got a regular VPN that you pay for, then you this is redundant. You don't need it. But anyway, it's, you know, it's kind of a cool idea. And I'm really glad to see Firefox keeping uh, up with their dedication to privacy and, and tools to help protect your privacy. All right, now let's get into some, some more meteor news. A very clever hacker has figured out how to jailbreak a lot of Apple devices. Not the current ones, and we'll talk about that in a second, but um, really a, a wide, wide range of Apple devices. This is very rare. Jailbreaking is a process by which you basically become super user or admin user on a phone, which most phones, certainly uh, Apple iPhones, don't allow this they, because they basically don't want you to shoot yourself in the foot. They don't want you to, to bypass a lot of their security settings. So they lock down the phone. And as a user, you can do certain things. You can install applications or whatever, but you know, you're not allowed to actually really kind of root around in the operating system and, and muck with the operating system software. But if you jailbreak a device, if you somehow manage to bypass those protections and get full administrative access to the device, then you can pretty much do whatever you want. So anyway, let, let me read a little bit from this article from Ars Technica. Often, when new iOS jailbreaks become public, the event is bittersweet. The exploit allowing people to bypass restrictions Apple puts into the mobile operating system allows hobbyists and researchers to customize their devices and gain valuable insights that may be peaking under the covers. The benefit is countered by the threat that the same jailbreak will give hackers a new way to install malware or unlock phones that are lost, stolen, or confiscated by unscrupulous authorities. Friday, we saw the release of Checkmate, and this is spelled C-H-E-C-K-M and then the number 8, Checkmate. Unlike just about every jailbreak exploit released in the past nine years, it targets the iOS boot ROM, which contains the very first code that's executed when an iDevice is turned on. Because the boot ROM is contained in read-only memory inside a chip, jailbreak vulnerabilities, vulnerabilities that reside there can't be patched. All right, let me stop there for a minute and, and kind of talk about this. So, uh, you know, your phone is a computer, and and like most modern computers, it actually has various stages of boot up. Uh, various things it does. Is there's usually a very first, extremely simple, very low-level thing that kind of gets everything going, then kind of finds where the hard drive is, finds where the the actual operating system is, make sure that it's valid and then boots that. And then we're kind of off to the races and it's more like what you think of as a computer, but there's this, there's often one or two stages before the operating system loads that does some security checks and some other things. And in this case, because it's so fundamental, uh, it's actually hardwired into these Apple devices in such a way that that piece of software can't be updated after the fact, this is not a, a bug that Apple can just release a patch for. Uh, which is why this is such a big deal. All right, let me get back to the article. Checkmate is different. It works on 11 generations of iPhones from the 4S to the 10 or X. While it doesn't work on newer devices, Checkmate can jailbreak hundreds of millions of devices in use today. And because the boot ROM can't be updated after the device is manufactured, Checkmate will be able to jailbreak in perpetuity. So the article actually goes on, but it, there's five key takeaways here. And then I'm going to kind of comment, but, um, 
Their five key takeaways here are, number one, Checkmate requires physical access to the phone. It can't be remotely executed, even if combined with other exploits. That's important. Two, the exploit allows only tethered jailbreaks, meaning it lacks persistence. The exploit must be run each time an iDevice boots. In other words, if you reboot the device, uh, this uh, admin access is lost. Three, Checkmate doesn't bypass the protections offered by the Secure Enclave and Touch ID. And now that's important because... Uh, in, in that secure enclave and in that uh, touch ID, are, are like touch ID has got uh, your fingerprint. They can't get that. They can't get to that. And the secure enclave has got all sorts of private keys for encryption of the drive and things like that that it also cannot get to. So that's important. So Apple did a good job there of segregating those things so that you know uh, the jailbreak didn't allow access to those things. Okay, number four. All the above means people will be able to use Checkmate to install malware only under very limited circumstances. The above also means that Checkmate is unlikely to make it easier for people who find, steal, or confiscate a vulnerable iPhone, but don't have the unlock pin to access the data stored on it. Again, so the hard, the, the hard drive in those iPhones is completely encrypted, and if you don't have the passcode to get in, or your, or your fingerprint ID or your face ID to get in, then you still can't access the data on that drive. So that's an important point, too. And finally, uh, number five, Checkmate is going to benefit researchers, hobbyists, and hackers by providing a way not seen in almost a decade to access the lower, the lowest levels of iDevices. Okay, so that's an interesting kind of take where, you know, a lot of security researchers complain that they can't get into, you know, really root around and, and check out an iPhone and look for security bugs because uh, Apple has it so locked down that they can't get into this administrative mode. Apple actually recently, uh, I believe, has now uh, started a program where if you are a security researcher, you can apply to Apple to get a jailbroken iPhone from Apple so that you can actually do this. And it's really to Apple's benefit. I'm sure you have to sign all sorts of contracts. But um, anyway, so that's neither here nor there. The, the important thing for you to, to know is that if you have an older phone, basically two years old or older, because the iPhone 10 came out two years ago, the iPhone X, some people call it. If you've got one that's old, then if someone has has this tool, has physical access to your device, they can plug in a cable and get full root or admin permissions on your device. That will not allow them to get the data off of that device, which is crucial. Uh, but it will allow them to do some other things uh, and get up to so some other mischief. So where I would probably, if I was a regular citizen, where I might worry about this most is uh, if my device was confiscated by some law enforcement agency, either at the border or a police officer or a TSA agent or whatever, you know, if they took it uh, you know, out of sight, out of your, out of your view for a amount of time and they had this tool, theoretically they could poke around on that device and either install, well, they couldn't, yeah, they could install malware uh, of some sort that may be able to do some data extraction, but you know, you would, if you reboot the phone, it's gone away. So I guess, you know, if you're worried about that, if someone takes the phone out of your site and does something, and as soon as you get it back, just reboot the phone. All right, let's move on. Um, iOS 13, which iOS is the operating system that runs on iPads and iPhones, and version 13 has just been released, and uh, it's got some great features, uh, including some really good privacy features. So if you have not updated, I strongly recommend that you do, because it's also got some uh, important security fixes as well. Uh, make sure you get the absolute latest version. I think that's currently, at the time of this recording, 13.1.2. Uh, there's been several bug fixes that have come out in a flurry after the initial release of 13. Uh, so make sure you get all those updates. But um, there's some really cool features, and Apple just keeps stepping it up, keeps adding some really great things. So I just want to kind of touch on those briefly. 
First of all, location tracking awareness and restrictions. Uh, many apps can use your location and some of them need them. Like, you know, if you're a maps app or a weather app or Uber or some of these things that, you know, actually kind of need to know where you are to do their job, uh, you need to give them access to your location information. And for a long time, Apple's had the opportunity, uh, had the, the setting that says, well, you can have my location, but you can only have my location when you're the frontmost app. Like when I'm actually using you, I'm looking at this app, I'm looking at the map. Yeah, certainly while I have that up, I want you to have my location. But if I, you know, bring up words with friends or, you know, Safari or something else, and you kind of go off in the background, then at that point, you don't need to know where I'm at. So uh, it had that capability. But now um, Apple is actually, you know, stepping it up a notch and, and warning you uh, if if any application has been using your location for a certain amount of time, I think it's like a few days. And where this is really upsetting is <laughs> Facebook, uh, because Facebook always wants to know where you are. And they really pushed hard. They put out press releases and things that are telling people, oh, hey, don't, you know, you make sure you let Facebook always know where you are. Because, you know, all the best features of Facebook require that kind of knowledge. <laughs> the other thing you'll find out is uh, when they've been tracking you, you can actually, there's a way, and I haven't tried this yet myself, but apparently when they pop up this message, you can actually have it show you all the times that it, access your location. And, uh, I saw, I saw a Facebook example of this and it was really creepy. Like everywhere you've ever been, Facebook was new. So anyway, so Apple's put in some extra protections for that. Uh, it all, it's also put in some other protections in your Bluetooth and your Wi-Fi uh, that'll help keep those from tracking as well. Some apps were using Bluetooth to actually communicate with little, what they call beacons, like in a mall or in a store. So they know, like, let's say you've got the Home Depot app on your phone and you walk into a Home Depot uh, and it's asked for permission to use your Bluetooth. If Home Depot had little Bluetooth beacons throughout the store, the app could see that and say, oh, he's in store 55. He walked up to this counter. He walked up to this end cap. He went to this row, you know, potentially. I'm not saying that Home Depot does this. I'm just saying that's a, theoretically, that's something that could be done. So anyway, Apple's put some more restrictions on the use of those technologies for those purposes um, to, to stop them from tracking you. Uh, let's see, a few other things they've got. Um, you can send any unknown callers to voicemail, which I love because I never answer a call that I don't know the number. Uh, and you can actually go into your phone now and say, well, if that phone number is not in my address book somewhere, then just send them to voicemail. I don't, don't even ring my phone. I love that. <laughs> so if it's important, they will leave a message and I will get back to them. Uh, there's a new sign-in with Apple, which I think I talked about a while back, and it's really kind of hard to get into here. But, you know, you've probably seen many apps that say, you know, well, I need you to create an account for this app or for this site or whatever. And so they, you could say, well, you can either give me your address or make up a password that you now have to remember, or you can just click this button and sign in with Google or sign in with Facebook. Uh, unfortunately, when you do that, you are now creating a link between that site and that account or that app and Facebook or Google. And they are trading and information on you when you do that. Apple now has sign-in with Apple, and they forced developers to use it. They basically said, okay, if you're going to offer any of these other options, like sign-in with Google or sign-in with Facebook, you also have to offer sign-in with Apple. Now, Apple doesn't make money off of your data. They, they don't need your data. So for one thing, Apple just generally won't collect your data. But another really cool part of this is when you sign-in with Apple, you have the option of giving them a, f well, it's not really a fake email address, but it's a... It's a kind of a pseudo anonymous email address. It creates this really crazy string of characters at iCloud.com or something. Uh, and it, it's, that's dedicated to that one site. Um, and so if you all of us and then all that, whatever mail gets sent to that weird account just gets forwarded to your regular Apple iCloud account. 
and email account. And the cool thing about that is, is if that company starts spamming you with a lot of crap, you can disable that, that one-time email address and just shut it up, which is, that's a really cool feature. Plus it doesn't give that other company your real email, email address either. So uh, I love that feature. That's really cool. A couple more things that you may not realize this, but whenever you take a picture on your iPhone, uh, it helpfully, I guess, for, for your perspective, embeds information into that photo, like including your location, like latitude and longitude. And, you know, so if you bring up photos in your photo app or whatever, and you and it knows where you took that picture, that's why. Uh, but sometimes you wouldn't want to share that information. So sometimes when you share a photo with someone, maybe you're texting it to someone or posting it on a website, if you, you may not realize it, but you're also sharing with it, with the world where you took that picture. Uh, you know, and if you're taking pictures of, of your young children at a playground, you know, maybe you don't want to advertise that this is where my kids play, that kind of thing. Anyway, so Apple now offers the capability. I've not seen this yet personally, but apparently when you go to share stuff from your photo album now, it actually pops up a thing that says, do you want me to remove the location information from this photo before I upload it? Which is really cool. That's great. If nothing else, it makes people aware that they're doing that. And then, of course, gives them the option to remove it, which is awesome. Uh, and another great one, um, when you share your contact list with an app, which you might want to do for an email app or a calendar app or um, maybe a social media app if you want to share your contacts, the way that used to work is they got access to everything in your address book. And if you think about it, like there's in the Apple address book, there's a notes section where you can put like, you know, last time you met them, what the names of the kids are, when the kids were born, you know, little bits of pieces of information that you might want to remember about that person. Uh, you know, maybe I know people sometimes put in pin codes, like, you know, if they put their bank in there or their financial institution, sometimes they put passwords or pin codes in the notes section. Well, until iOS 13, those apps that wanted access to your contact information also had access to the notes. Apple's now cut that off, which is wonderful. Should have been done a long time ago, but I'm glad they've finally done it. Anyway, so iOS 13 is out. They have a lot of great features. Android, actually, the latest Android 10 has got a lot of features in it, too, for privacy, even though... <laughs> made by Google. So that only goes so far, but at some point I'll try to talk about some of the Android features as well. Speaking of Android, my next uh, topic is there's some really sophisticated new Android malware uh, that affects a lot of different devices. Uh, let me just read a little bit here from the story from the Hacker News. Another day, another revelation of a critical unpatched zero-day vulnerability, this time in the world's most widely used mobile operating system, Android. What's more, the Android zero-day vulnerability has been also been found to be exploited in the wild by the Israeli surveillance vendor NSO Group, infamous for selling zero-day exploits to governments or one of its customers to gain control of their target's Android devices. I'll stop right there. We talked about NSO Group, but we talked to Eva Galprin from the EFF when we were talking about stalkerware being installed on your phone. NSO Group has done some really... I don't know, bad things. I'm sorry. I'll just go ahead and call it like I see it. Uh, they sell exploits and they basically for governments or people who have enough money to pay, they will, you know, give them tools that allow them to spy on other people's phones. Um, often remotely, you know, via text message or some other weird website or something, uh, being able to infect their phone. And all of a sudden now that phone is a spying device. So anyway, this affects many popular uh, devices. Let me just run through the, like some of the top ones here. Uh, the Pixel 1, the Pixel 1 XL, the Pixel 2, the Pixel 2 XL, the Huawei P20, the Xiaomi Redmi 5A, the Xiaomi Redmi Note 5, the Xiaomi A1, the Oppo A3, Moto Z3, Oreo LG phones. Uh, I think 
so LG phones that are running the Oreo version of Android, I guess, the Samsung S7, S8, and S9. Um, but they did note that the Pixel 3, 3XL, and 3A devices running the latest Android are not vulnerable to this issue. But anyway, that's a lot of different devices. So back to the article, it says, though Google will release a patch for this vulnerability in October's Android security bulletin in the coming days, and also uh, notify the OEMs, or the manufacturers, the original equipment manufacturers, most affected devices would not likely receive the patch immediately, unlike the Google Pixel 1 and 2. Although this vulnerability is severe and can be used to gain root access to an Android device, users need not worry that much as the exploitation of such issues is mostly limited to targeted attack scenarios. Nevertheless, it's always a good idea to avoid downloading and installing apps from third-party app stores and any unnecessary apps, even from the Google Play Store. So, yeah, so I wanted to talk about that and bring it up in that context because, um, yeah, that's always a great, even for iPhones and, every, and computers and everything. Sometimes when there's those free apps, we're all tempted to go, oh, yeah, let me try that. Oh, let me try that. Oh, let me try that. And you, before you know it, you got a ton of crap on your device or on your computer that was free one day or, you know, <laughs> or somebody said, hey, you know, go get it it's on sale. And you tried it out and you didn't use it. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of these apps are tracking you as well. So some of them have malware. So anyway, you know, be more judicious about what you, what you download. Make sure you only get it from official app stores. And, you know, if you're not using it, delete it. You can always reinstall it later if you want. Uh, but you should, <laughs> you should keep things lean and clean and, and, and take off anything that you're not actively using. The other part about this I wanted to bring up, which I've talked about before, and this is really a, a one of the main problems with Android security is Unlike Apple, who owns both the software and the hardware, uh, in the case of Android, there's many different manufacturers. And on top of that, there's many different cellular providers. And that means that whenever there's a software update, it has to filter through both of those levels before the updates can even possibly get to the phone. And sometimes they never make it. So unfortunately, when there's a bug found in Android, a lot of times uh, the phones never get that update to, uh, with the fix. So if you're ever going to use an Android phone, I recommend that you get one directly from Google, get the Pixel, get the Pixel model so that you know that you will get all the security updates that you need. You'll get them right away. All right. Next up, WhatsApp. If you use this, uh, uh, if you use this application, uh, this communication tool, and I'm, there are, I think, over a billion people on the planet that do, uh, you're going to want to listen to this article from ThreatPost. It says, a security researcher has identified a flaw in the popular WhatsApp messaging platform on Android devices, which could allow attackers to launch privilege elevation or remote code execution attacks on victims. So let me stop right there. Privilege elevation is kind of like, remember I was just talking about jailbreaking a phone and getting full administrator access to your phone. So the, a privilege elevation would be to take the regular user level of privilege, which is the, your regular use, which restricts what you can do. Uh, and pops you up to that administrator level, which means you could do anything. And then the remote code executions as they can basically remotely install and run malware on your device. So that's bad. <laughs> Let's go back to the article. It says, exploiting the flaw found by an information security enthusiast who calls himself Awakened is a rather complicated affair. An attack involves a bad actor sending a malicious GIF file to a victim via any channel, whether it's an email or in a direct message on WhatsApp. After a victim has downloaded the GIF file onto his device, the second step happens when he opens the WhatsApp gallery in order to send a media file to another user from WhatsApp. The victim doesn't need to actually send anything, just open the WhatsApp gallery. 
that's when the attack is triggered, according to Awakened. Quote, since WhatsApp shows previews of every media, including the GIF file received, it will trigger the double free bug in our RCE exploit. Uh, unquote. So again, that's some tech talk there. Uh, but basically what they're saying here is that if you've received this GIF image uh, and it's somewhere on your on your Android device in your list of image files, when you open up um, to send a message and open up and say, I want to send a picture, it doesn't have to open that exact picture because it's the, the, the gallery app is actually reading all those images to show little thumbnails of those images so you can pick it, right? That act alone is what causes the exploit to occur. So it goes on a little bit. Let me just cut it short. Um, so it's happening on Android 8.1 and 9 uh, and older versions of WhatsApp. WhatsApp has already fixed this. So just update your WhatsApp version. Make sure you have at least 2.19.244 or newer and you should be good. Now, let me take a little, a little aside because this is a classic argument in the software community, actually everywhere. And that is how do you pronounce GIF? <laughs> that is graphics interchange format. That is the file, uh, a common image file. And uh, where you see a lot of them today are the animated GIFs that um, there are little, little images with that look like little movies. If someone's ever sent you a little meme picture or whatever, that's a little video of something, that's almost surely a GIF image. But why do you pronounce it GIF? Some people pronounce it GIF. <laughs> um, this has been a raging debate ever since this was created years ago by this guy named uh, Steve Wilhite, I think is how you pronounce that. And uh, the reason for the confusion is that Steve Wilhite himself said, the, the, the creator of this format, said it's pronounced GIF like the peanut butter. He, he wanted it to sound like the peanut butter. And there's actually a whole website devoted to this called how to really pronounce GIF.com. I'm not kidding. Um, <laughs> because it's been such a source of debate. Now, you know, for a long time, I was of the opinion, okay, well, if the guy who created it wants it to be spelled GIF, then by golly, I'll, I'll go with the creator. But, you know, this website is actually pretty compelling. <laughs> so it's graphics interchange format. Graphics, hard G. So anyway, I actually, personally, I actually go back and forth. Sometimes I'll say GIF, sometimes I'll say GIF. Um, but anyway, just, just so you know, there actually, there are, you know, hard answers to which way to go on this and you just, but they're not clear. You'll have to decide which way you want to do it. So anyway, just a little sidebar. All right. Next up words with friends, a very popular app. Uh, that's basically kind of like Scrabble. And I know many people that play it as they've had a breach. Let me just read from this article uh, briefly from Lifehacker. It says, around 200 million players of the popular Words with Friends and Draw Something Games from Zynga have had their accounts information stolen by outside hackers, as the company describes. While your linked credit cards and any other methods you use to buy stuff within Zynga's games appears to be safe so far, your logins might have been compromised. As Zynga writes on a support page, it says, quote, Our current understanding is that no financial information was accessed. However, we understand that account information for certain players of certain Zynga games may have been accessed. As a precaution, we have taken steps to protect certain players' accounts from invalid logins, including, but not limited to, where we believe that passwords may have been accessed. Zynga has begun the process of sending individual notices to players where we believe that notice is required, unquote. The article continues, it says, should you be concerned if you're using the same password for Zynga as you are on other services? Yes, that's an easy problem to fix. However, get a password manager and make sure you're using strong, unique passwords for all your various services, which cuts down the likelihood that the password breach on one site will compromise your security on another. 
And yes, that's the real takeaway here. As the as is the takeaway every time there's one of these password database breaches, um, that's why you a need to use strong passwords because if you actually do use a really strong password, even though the password database has been stolen, database has been stolen, those passwords are are hashed, which is kind of like certain kind of like encrypted, but not not exactly. Anyway, they don't actually store if your password is P A S S W R D, they don't actually store P-A-S-S-W-R-I-D in their database. They hash that and store the hash of that password. Um, anyway, but if it's a bad password, <laughs> they can uh, they can pre-calculate all the hashes for, uh, you know, the list of 1,000 known bad passwords and find it easily. Um, anyway, but the real protection here is that every site you use should have a unique strong password. And the only way to do that is to use a password manager. So um, I, I recommend LastPass. You can try 1Password. There's Dash dash form the roboform or dash lane uh there are several um but you really today really today you need to be using a password manager all right next up microsoft uh 10 uh, i guess recently has gone to even greater lengths to hide the local account option which is to say that the option where you can create an account on the machine that is not tied to a microsoft account um zdnet has an article and let me just read briefly from that so uh, from the article, it says a user on popular Reddit thread says that the local account option is now invisible if the device is connected to the Internet. Quote, either run the setup without being connected to the Internet or type in a fake phone number a few times and it will give you a prompt to create a local account, unquote. Uh, so there is a way around the obstacle. But as a Reddit user, um, as a different Reddit user noted, quote, it's such a <laughs> pardon me. It's such a dick move. <laughs> I'll never tie my main OS with an online account, unquote. Some users report that setting up local account after reinstalling Windows 10 is a viable option, but Microsoft is discouraging users from taking it. Uh, quote, they changed the wording and made it sound like it was the worst choice I could make, but it let me do it, unquote. So, okay. So, I mean, Microsoft and, you know, admittedly Apple as well. Uh, Apple has iCloud accounts. Uh, they have both been pushing these very hard in recent years, and a lot of the features that are uh, in the modern and their modern operating system versions are tied very closely to these accounts. So it's kind of a, you know, once you start really making it tied in like that, it's kind of hard not to do it. And of course they want you to be able to use these features. So they push very hard uh, for you to sign up for these accounts. It's really, really hard to avoid these days. And honestly, in my book, I pretty much tell people just to go ahead and do it. Um, but however, with Microsoft in particular, you're going to want to make sure that when you do create one of these accounts that you set the privacy, check all the privacy settings, and there are a bunch, um, that you want to make sure you lock down and not give away too much information to Microsoft. Uh, I'm less worried about Apple. Again, Apple's business model doesn't require your information, and they're very privacy-oriented. Um, but Microsoft apparently is looking to monetize some of that data. Uh, so anyway, I'll put this link in the show notes, but if you go to, to um, uh, DuckDuckGo's privacy site called spreadprivacy.com, just like it sounds, um, and search for Windows 10 privacy tips, uh, you'll find their list of um, all the settings you should go through and, and, and change uh, on Windows 10. If you're going to sign up for a, with a Microsoft account, um, which things you need to lock down and, and, and restrict. All right, two more stories and then the tip of the week. Man, we've got a lot of stuff to cover. So um, this is a really troublesome one, actually. Um, it's called SimJacker. Sim is the subscriber identity module, um, and it's contained on those little uh, smart chips that you put in your, that you put in most cell phones. Not all cell phones. Uh, I think some of the older CDMA version phones uh, don't have SIM cards. 
but you've seen them. These are the little things when you get a new phone. Um, it's that tiny little chip that they slide into the side of your phone. That, that's your SIM card. Uh, let me read the write-up here from uh, Naked Security, which is the Sophos blog. It says, The shadowy world of phone surveillance for hire became a little clearer last week following the discovery of a phone exploit called SimJacker. The exploit, discovered by a mobile carrier security company, Active Mobile Security, allows attackers to, rem- allows attackers to remotely exploit a phone simply by sending a text message. From the report, quote, the main SimJacker attack involves an SMS containing a specific type of spyware-like code being sent to a mobile phone, which then instructs the SIM card within the phone to take over the mobile phone to retrieve and perform sensitive commands. Unquote. The message won't even display to the user, it said. Furthermore, because the attack is independent of phone brand, around a billion phone users are vulnerable. Adaptive mobile security found people using the exploit... Uh, which researchers speculated about as far back as 2011. In a report on the technology, the company said, quote, we believe this vulnerability has been exploited for at least the last two years by a highly sophisticated attacker group, unquote. The attack works by using a legacy browser technology embedded in the SIM card on many mobile phones called the SAT-T, that's capital S ampersand, no, I'm sorry, capital S, the at sign, capital T. Uh, I'm just going to call it the SAT browser. Called the SAT browser, is normally used for browsing through the phone's SIM card, but it can also receive specially crafted messages sent by the carrier network. These are not regular messages. They're binary code used to process special instructions. The browser was normally used to send things like promotional messages, but the attackers used it to process invisible requests for the phone's location data and its International Mobile Equipment Identity, or IMEI, which is a unique ID to every mobile phone. They'd send a message to the SAT browser asking it for this information, which it would then retrieve and store on the SIM card. The attacker would, could then retrieve it by sending another message. The SAT browser is a great tool for attacking a phone via SMS message because the specifically crafted messages it receives don't alert the user in any way. The request and the phone's response is silent. This means attackers can use it to spy on a phone's user by sending messages repeatedly to the phone, requesting its location without them being any the wiser. Adaptive Mobile Security used its own threat analysis system to correlate the pattern of the attack with the attackers already in the database, and it appears to have found a hit. It continued, quote, We could say with a high degree of certainty that the source is a large professional surveillance company with a very sophisticated abilities in both signaling and handsets, unquote. The group has also tested other attacks using the same mechanism, including spreading malware and call interception. Phone surveillance is becoming a big business, with several companies offering to hack high-profile targets. While these solutions are usually sold as crime-fighting or anti-terrorism technologies, that uh, there have been concerns that some governments are using them for human rights abuses. Now that Adaptive Mobile has shown a light on SimJacker, it's up to carriers to fix the problem, it warned. The exploit works because many operators aren't checking the source of these binary messages. They could block it by configuring the firewall technology in their networks, it advised. Okay, so the long and short of it is this is a really bad bug. Um, It's in a lot of phones, both Android and iOS, iPhones and other type phones, uh, because it's at the very base SIM level uh, of the phone, which is shared by both these kind of devices. It's uh, unpatchable, as far as I can tell. Uh, that is, it can't just push, publish a software update to, to block it, from what I can tell. Uh, what really needs to happen is that the cell phone carriers need to block these special messages from unknown locations. Uh, hopefully they will do that, but of course, 
you know, as we all know, a lot of these telecom firms are actually, you know, working behind the scenes very gladly with, you know, government surveillance. So, you know, will they do it? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I'll keep you posted on this. If I see anything else on this, I don't know if there's, if there is anything that can be done, um, at the uh, operating system level, like can Apple or can Google put out a patch that would fix this? I, I don't think they can cause it's really below that level. So anyway, more, I guess the, the one upside is that this is probably only going to be used by really high value targets. So we're talking, you know, investigative journalists, dissidents, um, you know, but maybe corporate espionage, maybe, uh, uh espionage between countries, leaders, uh, politicians, those kind of things. Um, but you personally are, you know, as a regular Joe, are probably not going to be targeted by this. Um, so anyway, uh, just wanted to bring that to your attention. All right, one more quick story. Um, and the Department of Justice has recently released a, a letter and uh, it was co-signed by uh, Australia and, and the United Kingdom uh, asking Facebook not to implement end-to-end encryption on their messaging services. Um, I guess Facebook had planned to roll this out, and what their these, these government agencies are basically saying, please, please don't do that, because if you do it, we're not going to be able to spy on everybody. And I do mean everybody. <laughs> so this is a mass surveillance issue. And, of course, the EFF has responded to this, as they usually do. Uh, and this article that I'm about to read from was... Um, co-written by a friend of the show, Andrew Crocker. He's been on, I've interviewed him before last year. Um, we talked about some mass surveillance stuff then too. So anyway, uh, this is short. Let me just read it real quick. Cause I think it hits all the right points. Top law enforcement officials in the United States, United Kingdom and Australia told Facebook today that they want backdoor access to all encrypted messages sent on all its platforms. In an open letter, these governments called on Mark Zuckerberg to stop Facebook's plan to introduce end-to-end encryption on all of the company's messaging products and instead promised that it will quote, enable law enforcement to obtain lawful access to content in a readable and usable format, unquote. This is a staggering attempt to undermine the security and privacy of communication tools used by billions of people. Facebook should not comply. The letter comes in concert with the signing of a new agreement between the U.S. and U.K. to provide access to allow law enforcement in one jurisdiction to more easily obtain electronic data stored in the other jurisdiction. But the letter to Facebook goes much further. Law enforcement and national security agencies in these three countries are asking for nothing less than access to every conversation that crosses every digital device. The letter focuses on the challenges of investigating the most serious crimes committed using digital tools, including child exploitation, but it ignores the severe risks that introducing encryption backdoors would create. Many people, including journalists, human rights activists, and those at risk of abuse by intimate partners, use encryption to stay safe in the physical world as well as the online one. And the encryption is central to, pre- to preventing criminals and even corporations from spying on our private conversations and to ensure that the communications infrastructure we rely on is truly working as intended. What's more, the backdoors into encrypted communications sought by these governments would be available not just to governments with a supposedly functional rule of law. Facebook and others would face immense pressure to also provide them to authoritarian regimes who might seek to spy on dissidents in the name of combating terrorism or civil unrest, for example. The Department of Justice Justice and its partners in the UK and Australia claim to support strong encryption, but the unfettered access to encrypted data described in their letter is incompatible with how encryption actually works. So yeah, I think think that basically covers it. We've talked about this on the show many times before, the whole going dark problem. Uh, I've interviewed several people about it, and we've kind of debunked that that issue. 
and I'm not going to get into it all here. But anyway, just pay attention to this issue because it's a big one, and it's um, because it involves you know some real heavyweights here, Facebook and three <laughs> three governments of three large nations, including our own. It's probably going to get a lot of press, and it, I hope it goes the right way. We'll see what happens. Okay, last up. I just saw a report from ZDNet about a study that was done that showed that 60% of used hard drives that they were able to purchase were not properly erased. Uh, let me read real quickly from the article, and then uh, we'll get to our tip of the week, which is how and why to wipe your devices before getting rid of them. All right, from the article, it says, A whopping 59% of used hard disks sold on sites such as eBay are not properly wiped and still contain data from their previous owners, according to a new study by the University of Hertfordshire uh, and commissioned by Comparatech. Comparatech purchased 200 used hard drives, half in the USA and the other half in the UK, and carried out testing to see how many contained recoverable information. The breakdown of the results makes for horrific reading. 26% 26% had been formatted, but data could still be easily recovered. 17% contained deleted data that could easily be recovered. 16% appeared to have no attempt made to delete the data. So only 20%, so only 26% of the drives had been properly wiped and contained no recoverable data, while a further 16% were accessible and could not be read. The drives contained a wide variety of data, including employment and payroll records, family and holiday photos, uh, along with intimate photos and sexualized content, uh, business documents, visa applications, lists of passwords, passport and driver's license scans, tax documents, bank statements, and lists of students attending senior high schools. Okay, so the bottom line here is you've got devices that have data on them. If you're not careful, if you resell that info or give it to someone or donate it or even throw it in the trash, that data, if you don't take care, is still there for anybody to pick up and read. So I just actually wrote a really long blog article about this, and I'll put the link in the show notes, and I highly recommend you just check that out because it's, it's got lots of links uh, that you'll need to, to go through this process. But let me just give you the high-level tip. In today's devices, there are now basically two kinds of hard drives. There's the old-style hard drives, which are the actual spinning platters of magnetic information that are contained in the rather, you know, large, you know, maybe the size of a sandwich (laughs) kind of uh, hard drives. Uh, Those were in use for many, many, many years. And those are really kind of the focus of what we're going to talk about today, because the other kind of drives are solid state drives or SSDs. Uh, And basically, instead of spinning magnetic platters in those, they store the information on, on computer chips. There's no moving parts. So not only mechanically are they more sound, but they actually are a lot smaller uh, than the physical drives. And they take a lot less power and all sorts of other good things. Unfortunately, they're expensive, but the prices are coming down all the time. And that is definitely the future. We're going that way. Uh, So your iPhones, iPads, Android tablets, you know, all all those kind of appliance kind of devices already have this SSD drives in them. And some modern laptops... Uh, have SSD drives as well. In fact, most modern laptops have SSD drives. Um, some computers do. Some desktop computers do. Uh, some of them have what they call hybrid drives. Uh, that's kind of a weird hybrid mix between... Uh, it's a, it has both an SSD component and a regular hard drive spinning platter component. But the, here's the deal. So SSDs are actually really hard to erase properly because when you're storing that data on the electronic chips those chips actually wear out if you write to, you write and read from them uh, too often. So under the covers, 
in the chip itself, it actually kind of spreads that data around and moves it around to kind of keep everything level. It's called wear leveling. Because of that, basically what that means is any data you had on, you know, stored in one part could actually be copied multiple places throughout, throughout that chip. And the operating system only keeps track of the, of the main one. So there's like these shadow copies or these other extra copies that are floating around on that, on those chips that if you had the right kind of tool, you could actually get in there and poke around and find those other copies of the data. So it's actually really hard to uh, properly wipe an SSD. However, the, the saving grace is that most of these devices now come with hard drive, full hard drive encryption turned on by default. Uh, so your iPhones and Android phones, anything modern um, is going to have this on by default. And what that means is all the data that's on those things is completely and utterly scrambled. Uh, and the only way that you get them, uh, get them to unlock is you put in the passcode or whatever in your phone, or your face ID or fingerprint, whatever you unlock or you, uh, that, that stuff and get to the decryption key so that you can access all the data. But if you don't have that pin code and, and you can't decrypt the data. So even if you were to physically remove the hard drive, uh, those take those SSD chips out and probe them with whatever tool you had, you'll find the data, but all the data is going to be totally scrambled. And without the password, it's useless. So um, there's that. So, so um, if you've got an SSD and if you've got, uh, if it's a, like a smartphone or a tablet, more than likely the um, uh, full encryption is turned on by default uh, and you don't have to worry as much. However, uh, if you've got a desktop computer, particularly an older desktop computer that has one of those more classic spinning hard drives, then uh, you need to pay attention. So there's a couple ways to do this, and, and I'll put links in the show notes for uh, for Macs and for PCs. There are a few things you, you, you want to do, and because, as we talked about before, Apple has iCloud or iTunes accounts, and Microsoft has Microsoft accounts, and they get tied to these devices. And so there's actually a few steps you'll need to do before you resell your device or donate it or pitch it or whatever you're going to do, where you kind of have to, you know, undo all these account settings, like, you know, deauthorize the computer and disconnect it from iCloud and disconnect it from, you know, a Microsoft account or whatever. Otherwise that, you know, once you've gotten rid of the device, you've no longer have access to it and you probably can't remove it from that remotely. Um, so anyway, they're, and they're different for Apple and, and, uh, Microsoft. And so if you go to my blog article, there's links that tell you, uh, all the steps you need to go through to, to cover that aspect of things, uh, the, the account stuff. Um, uh, so you definitely want to do that. The other thing you de- also want to do is make sure you back up everything before you get rid of it in case you need that data, uh, or in case you screw something up here. Now at the next step, if you're going to resell it or donate it, like someone else is going to use it after you, uh, then what you really want to do is you kind of want to wipe wipe the drive and put it back in factory fresh state. Like you want it to be just as if you took it out of the box. So it's boots up to a fresh operating system where it's asking you to create an account and configure the device and all that kind of stuff. And again, uh, both uh, Macintoshes and Windows PCs have slightly different ways of doing that. Uh, you can, but there's basically a way to factory reset both of them. And again, I'll put links in the show notes. It's way too detailed to try to get into here. Uh, you want to check out the blog entry to, to get all the details on that. But here's the fun part. So if you're if you're gonna recycle the device uh, or throw it away uh, responsibly because you uh, these computers have special things in them, you can't just throw it in the trash. You've got to take it to a special electronics recycling slash waste facility. So if you're gonna do that, make sure you know make sure you take it to the proper place. But before you do that, so that someone doesn't go through the garbage and pick this out uh, and try and try to you know get your data, you could just nuke the whole thing. And there's actually a, a a very popular tool called Derek's Boot and Nuke, uh, D-Ban, D-B-A-N. 
And if you go to dban.org, it's a free and open source tool that basically you install this special tool on a, on a USB drive, a little thumb drive. Uh, and then you plug that drive into your computer and reboot your computer from that thumb drive. Uh, and at that point, that tool will completely wipe, quote unquote, nuke all the data on that hard drive in a very thorough fashion. Um, again, it doesn't really work for SSDs, but if you've done full disk, full disk encryption, you don't need that. Uh, this is for regular hard drives. Um, so that's another great option. If you're, if you know, if the result when you're done is you want an unusable computer with data that cannot be accessed, that's, that's a good option. And finally, just because it's fun, uh, you can actually, uh, physically destroy the hard drives as well. Uh, this is obviously takes some tools and some effort. Um, but you know, if you ever wanted to see what one of these things does, this can be kind of fun. You can actually extract the hard drive the hard drive and, and, and open up the case. Well, I, actually there's two methods I've seen that, that, that are good in the case itself. Uh, you can actually take like some big six inch spikes, big, big six inch nails and a big hammer. And if you just hammer a few six inch nails through the round, the, the platter part that ought to do it. Uh, or if you want to see what the guts look like, you can actually take the hard drive apart and you can see the spinning platters. And at that point you can just take a hammer to it. <laughs> uh, and that will make them unreadable. So again, there's links, links in the article about how to do that. The, the, the real upshot of all this thing is, is to realize that there's a lot of potentially useful to criminals, um, information on your hard drive, a lot of very sensitive stuff and that you don't want to just give away. So whenever you get rid of a device that has data on it, smartphone, tablet, computer, laptop, uh, you really want to make sure that you've done a number on that and, and wiped all the data before you do it. And again, uh, you're going to want to see my blog entry for this. I'll put a link on the show notes, go to firewalls, don't stop dragons.com. Uh, and if you just search on D band, probably that'll bring it up quickly. Um, if you go there now, it's probably the top article. So all right, man, we had a lot to catch up on. Thanks for hanging in there with me. Uh, we covered a lot of ground today. I've got a few other little tidbits I'd like to pass on. Um, I just had a, uh, recently, had a really, really nice and thorough review done of my book uh, from a, a site called Defending Digital, uh, defendingdigital.com. And if you go there, you'll probably see it. It's one of the top things there. My book, Firewalls, Don't Stop Dragons. He did a very thorough and, and frankly, glowing review of the book. Uh, it was very, very nice. Uh, I've actually even taken a portion of that review and posted it on the Amazon page for the book because I thought it was so great. And as it turns out, I've been, uh, I, he, I reached out to this guy. Uh, actually, he re reached out to me initially because he was asking me some questions about the book before I realized he was reviewing it. And uh, we, so we had some communication, communication going. And then my Google alert popped uh, for my book, and I found his review was posted. Uh, and so I got back in touch with him, and we've been talking a little more. And he actually has a podcast as well. And uh, he's going to interview me for his podcast. So I'll keep you posted on that. And I will let you know uh, where to find that interview when it happens. But otherwise, I, you know, I, this is a good time to talk about the book. I, I do talk about it every once in a while. But if you don't have the book, you really ought to check it out. It's got over 150 different tips in it. It's got all sorts of step-by-step -step instructions complete with pictures uh, for both Mac and PC. Uh, for how to do a lot of the stuff we talked about today, a lot of this, uh, a lot of the encrypting your hard drive and how to wipe your drive before you sell it, all that stuff is talked about in the book. Those are some of the, some of the many tips uh, that are in the book, but it covers really covers everything. And we, you know, safe web browsing, um, parental stuff, how, you know, how to choose a new computer, 
how to pick the best web browser, how to find the, the, the plugins for that web browser that will protect your privacy and protect your data, how to back up your computer so that if something does go wrong, you don't lose everything. It, it, it covers a lot, a lot of ground, and I really try to keep it as simple as possible. Uh, so anyway, if you haven't personally checked it out, I would definitely uh, recommend that you give that a look. Uh, and if you like it, recommend it to some others as well. Um, the real point of this is to try, because there's so many so many easy things we can all be doing and should be doing to protect ourselves. And honestly, the more we all do these things, the more we kind of develop this herd immunity because we're all connected 24 seven now with the internet. And because of that, it's like a true virus. When some, when a virus gets out there, it's a lot easier to spread. But if we're all kind of inoculated because we've taken some basic steps to protect ourselves, these things are, are don't spread nearly as easily. So it's not even really just about you. It's really, it's for everybody. So the more people that do these kind of things, the safer we will all be. Now, if you have the book and you're listening to the podcast and you're signed up for the newsletter and you're following me on Twitter and all this stuff, uh, and you're really enjoying this content, then uh, if you want to kick it up a notch and um, support me at a financial level, uh, you can go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. You search for Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. You'll find me there. Uh, that really does help. These All this stuff does take time and effort and money. Um, so I appreciate uh, any any sort of help you can give. And you can give as little as $2 a month. Um, so check that out on Patreon. I would very much appreciate it. And if you're already doing it, thank you very much. But maybe, you know, uh, suggest to some friends as well that they might give that a look. Uh, I don't call for this often, but uh, it's always kind of been implicit. But if you're listening to the podcast or taking advantage of any of the other things that I just talked about, uh, I welcome your feedback. Uh, if you'd like me to cover something in the next version of the book or the next podcast, if there's somebody you think it would be great for me to interview or some other, any other feedback you have on, on the way I do this stuff, I'm, I'm all ears. And you can send that feedback to uh, feedback at firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. Uh, and I will get that and uh, can't promise to reply to every one of them, but I will certainly read them all. And uh, I appreciate your feedback. So um, if I haven't mentioned it for a while, so if there if there's something you'd like to let me know, uh, that's a great way to do it. Again, that's feedback at firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. All right, real quick. Next week, uh, we've got another interview where we're talking with Joshua Mata. He is a, a, from a company that sells cyber insurance. And so he's got a lot of really good insight into all the ransomware attacks and things that are going on, particularly the ones that are hitting um, some small and medium-sized businesses. Um, and he's got some, just some really interesting info. It was a very fun interview. So tune in next week for that. Um, I've got some other great interviews coming up as well. So, uh, make sure you get them all go to, go to your favorite podcast app and actually subscribe to the podcast and you'll make sure you get every one and you don't miss a thing. Okay. Whew, that's going to do it. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you next week. And until then stay safe and don't get caught with your garbage down.